You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello, I'm Sean Feiler, CIO of Equinox Partners, and I'm pleased to be on Real Vision with Marcus Frampton, the CIO of the Alaska Permanent Fund. Uh, Marcus is an independent thinker in what is generally uh, regarded as a very conventional sector. So, uh, Marcus, welcome. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's get right to it. What is the Alaska Permanent Fund? So the Alaska Permanent Fund was set up in the late 1970s after um, oil was found in Prudhoe Bay in Alaska, which at the time was the largest um, North American discovery of oil. So the fund, since inception in the late 70s, receives 25% of the royalty deposits um, uh, earned by the state um, from production here. So, you know, we've grown from an initial deposit of 700000 to today. We're at 75 billion. Um, and so we invest that fund globally across asset classes. And then we transfer each year about 5% of the fund to the state, which is used for dividends and to residents of the, the state. So Alaska is actually the only longstanding universal basic income um, instance I'm aware of. So there's this dividend, there's no state income taxes if you live here. And then a portion of that transfer funds state government. And do you have a specific mandate in terms of the return or capital preservation uh, that you expect to hit on a long-term or annual basis? Yes. So we target a, a real return of 5%. So that ends up at nominal around 7% if you believe the inflation forecast. It could you know higher if there's higher inflation. So real return of 5%, that ends up putting us right about where most state pension funds target in that seven to eight area and most endowments target it. So you have, you know, the whole, pretty much the whole institutional investment community targeting kind of the 7% return. And, and we're at that same level. For us, it's because we want to support the state with 5% a year and then maintain the inflation adjusted value of the fund into the future. So if I think about your peers, and I think as Americans, maybe we're not that familiar with state-based sovereign wealth funds, which you are, is, are your peers really other sovereign wealth funds internationally, or are they more the state pension funds, or is that a, a distinction without a meaningful difference? The way we're set up tends to look a lot like the state pension funds. Like if you look at our investment policy statement, if you look at the way we work with our board and our general consultant and others, we look and feel like a state pension fund. However, more and more, we've been trying to emulate some of the international sovereign wealth funds and, um, you know, they run the gamut, but the, the, you know, the largest is the Norway fund. Um, then there's obviously GIC and Tomasic and others, um, which tend to have kind of a broader remit, more international investments, more direct private equity, you know, versus all through funds. So, We've been moving a little bit in that direction, except if you compare us in terms of our policies and our setup, et cetera, we're probably most 
look like a state pension fund. And then you mentioned uh, your consultants. You use consultants, I presume, like most other uh, pension funds and sovereign wealth funds. What's? Can you give us some insight into how useful that is? What kind of what addition they provide? Uh, investment insights to what you guys do in house? Yes. Yeah, so we have consultants working on most of our areas, and in the alternatives area, they help with manager selection. There's another consultant that's our board consultant, um, Callan Associates. They do our um, annual asset allocation review with our board, which I think is probably the, the most critical decision that gets made year to year. Um, and then the rest is execution throughout the year. But, um, you know, they're pretty impactful on that front. And in this in the investing environment we're in today, um, you know, those that work on asset allocation is what's driving large flows in, in markets because similar advice is, is given, you know, across the state pension fund world. And so I think one of the most interesting things that have come up recently is, is they came out with their 10 year forecast, which they do every year for the asset classes. And then they apply it to, you know, to what we invest in. It has real implications. If you're running a state pension fund, that's the basis for, your underfunded status is the actuarial discounting and then what you, you know, and so they have to build a portfolio that can earn a 7% return. In this last year, global equities on that study was under a 7% return, which implies a 100% uh, equity portfolio would not achieve um, Mm -hmm. most institutional investors' objectives. You know, private equity was the one asset class at 8.5%. And there's false precision in all these numbers, but real decisions get made off of them. And so that's why I think you're seeing just such rapid growth in private equity is at this point, it's the only asset class that, in, at least in Callan's case, and I think similar in other consultants, even gets you to on a forecasted basis to what people are targeting. And then unlike your peers, I think you are a little less conventional or a little more independent in terms of investing in asset classes and, and making allocations that your peers don't. Can you give us some, some background or insight into, into why that is, why you are a little bit of a, an outlier or, or differentiated from your peers in terms of some of your, your investment decisions? Yeah, well, you know, I think our Achilles heel and all, you know, institutional allocators in the U.S. targeting similar return, um, Achilles heel is periods of low growth and periods of high inflation. So, um, you know, if you look at a 60-40 portfolio or you look at our portfolio through the 70s, it was a period of zero to negative real return with inflation where it was. And then in the 2000s, a decade with two recessions and a flat stock market, again, was a period of, of basically zero real return for a 60-40 portfolio. So, you know, the observation I've made that we implemented this year was that gold is the asset that does particularly well in periods of recession and low growth or inflation. So um, we've added a gold allocation. Um, Hedge funds is another area that I think should be emphasized by allocators. And back to the the consultant forecast that drives so much stuff, um, they, assume a 0.8 correlation and a 4% return for hedge funds, which probably maps to what the HFRI will do or you know what they have done in the past. But I look at hedge funds and absolute return as you could 
you can, with some um, effort and skill, you, it's not unreasonable to think that you can find uncorrelated managers that hit a 0.7 sharp ratio with 10 to 12 vol. And then right there, you have an uncorrelated return that's getting up near what we're targeting for the total fund. And so it's such a valuable uh, return stream that I think has been kind of like de-emphasized by institutional investors, at least state funds, probably less so endowments in the last decade, that you know, if you use the broad HFRI numbers or, or these, um, you know, the capital market forecasts that were given, you wouldn't have any hedge funds. There's no value to the asset class if it's going to be 4% return, 0.8 correlation, but that's not what we're trying to do. So we just try to come up with our own independent views on these areas and, and apply that. And it's led us to do some things that I think are kind of, you know, common sense, like owning some gold and targeting uncorrelated managers, whereas others, I think, have just continually gravitated more equity and more private equity. What kind of return expectation do the consultants give you on gold? Inflation. So, Inflation. Um, huh. yeah, they. It, so it's when you score our portfolio, it only hurts us when we add gold. Um, but the, you know, in their inflation forecast, like if you use my inflation forecast or yours, you might actually own some. Okay. Yeah. But um, their forecast, you know, Callan's latest last year, they had uh, the ten-year outlook for inflation at two and a quarter. And then this year it came in, um, uh, and this is a couple months ago that the new forecast came out. So this is post COVID, you know, post 20% money printing, the new number is 2%. So, um, I, and I don't know what went into that. There's certainly a deflation camp and an inflation camp and, you know, to lower your inflation outlook in the last 12 months is a little stunning to me, but that's the forecast that's used for gold. And, so it's dilutive to our expected real return. What size investment did you did you make in gold and how'd you do it? So we own it in a couple different ways. We over the last few months, we've owned in the neighborhood of four to five hundred million of gold miners uh, stocks. So we've done we've implemented that through the ETFs, um, you know, the primary um, uh, uh, Vanek uh, ETFs. I think that it's an area that that active management could uh, is ripe to add value, but to get the positions on in the time we wanted, we did the the ETFs, and then we also own IAU, the um, the the gold ETF. The, an issue we have, and everyone in our industry has, is we have the asset classes and the bucketing. So what we changed in our investment policy was that we could hold a portion of our cash in IAU, and we could put a portion of our hedge fund portfolio in IAU. And we did not, we didn't set up like a dedicated commodities allocation, which might make sense at some point. So we have somewhere around five to 10% of our hedge fund portfolio in the ETF IAU. So kind of an odd fit there, but it, from a portfolio role standpoint, that's where it, it made the most sense for us. And how, how did you pick amongst the various gold ETFs? And, you know, in terms of doing the ETFs versus doing the physical, I guess implicitly you're comfortable that the the gold's there and it's just a cheaper, more efficient way to execute it, or if you could walk walk through that. I think as an individual investor, it makes a lot of sense to own physical gold. Um, the As an institutional investor, 
the ETF made the most sense for us. And there's five or six of them out there. GLD is the most well-known. Um, and I've actually owned that in the past and, and in my personal account. And then we did just a little bit of work and IAU is like half the fee and um, similar liquidity. Um, so it's, it's kind of, I think GLD's maybe twice the management fee. So it's, you know, they were the first mover, but IAU makes a little bit more sense, I think, for institutional investors. So let's go back to the, the, the point about stagflation you made, Marcus. And how, won't stocks protect portfolios against inflation or it's a particular type of stagflation where gold does better than stocks? Or how do you, how do you think through that? Because a lot of your peers haven't gotten to the point where they're owning gold and certainly not gold miners yet. Maybe they're dipping their toe in the water, but not really done what you guys have done yet. I think it depends on the level of inflation and the, the type of the data isn't great. You know, we I went back and tried to look at different how different assets correlate to, to inflation or deflation. And it's actually hard with gold to do the analysis since for most of the last 200 years, we were on the gold standard. So um, and then, you know, gold exploded in price in the 70s. Um, so it's I think that from the studies I've seen, I don't think stocks are a great inflation hedge. I think that my, you know, they're, they do better than fixed income does, but, you know, particularly when there's unexpected rapid inflation, a lot of companies, I think, struggle to pass that through. So, and that's why stocks didn't do that great on a real return basis in the seventies, whereas gold did. Um, so, but I think it, you know, I, I think that there's inflation that's driven by an economy running really hot and, 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 you know, output being near, you know, potential and that resulting in inflation flowing through. And then there's like monetary inflation from, you know, printing money and, and that can be, I think, a little less predictable. Um, So I think the type of inflation we get probably will, will matter, but my, from what I've looked in the studies, I've seen gold is, is the best asset to own um, um, across both those types of inflation. Did you have a look at silver as you got to your your gold thesis? Um, obviously, another monetary metal, high correlation to gold, but but obviously different, much smaller market in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, I think gold or silver is the natural second investment, and clearly in the in the miners portfolio that we have, we're getting some other precious metal exposure. I mean. You know, gold is the classic one and the most time-tested one, and I think, you know, probably makes the most sense. But a, an investor could add silver for sure. Maybe just a, a question or two about the miners. Um, how do you think about gold mining? Um, is it a way to invest in gold with more leverage? Is it is there uh, are they undervalued in general? Or how do you think about it from a top-down perspective? It's a sector that I think makes sense for its own reasons, aside from just the macro environment we're in. I think there's some similarities to the EMP space where, you know, over the last 10 or 20 years, there wasn't always the capital discipline and people are starting to see that now um, out of some of the producers. So it's, um, it's definitely levered exposure to the commodity. I mean, if you just look at the, the NPV of, the, of a miner's holdings and, um, you know, if they have a certain marginal cost, you know, it, when gold's below that, 
it's a negative NPV, but then it kind of just exponentially increases as as the price exceeds the the marginal cost um, for a mine. So um, I know you know that well. So I think that that it it it's a different exposure and one that that if you're taking it from a beta standpoint is easy to put on if you're actively managing it. Probably requires some expertise that we don't have uh, in-house permanent fund. And how do you, what about all the ESG issues involved in mining? I presume you have mining elsewhere in your portfolio as well. Is there right. any, any unique or different take or special processes or considerations you have to go through in investing in, in mining as a sector, given some of the issues that come up? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the reasons why we went with the broad market ETF is we didn't necessarily want to get into um, you know, judging you know, which ESG factors we wanted exposure to versus the others. I think, you know, we're um, on a broad ESG basis. I mean, we're not avoiding certain sectors. So like we like the oil and gas sectors outlook right now. Um, certainly want to be investing in companies that are that are good corporate citizens and following, you know, uh, the law. But it, you know, we haven't moved away from resources, and that would include mining. So you mentioned kind of in your inflation uh, concern, the rate of money growth in the United States. And if you look at fiscal and monetary policy, I mean, I think your average observer uh, is just, I think, shocked by where we are. Um, I, are you? Is it? Is it? Are these? You know, are we in extraordinary times, both from a fiscal and monetary perspective? And is there any going back to anything normal? Well, that's a good, <laughs> that's a good question. I think that you can identify things that are happening in the last decade and then accelerating in the last um, year or two that are unprecedented. And I always ask economists and you know, macro hedge fund managers that we invest with this very topic. I mean, it, it, it's hard to ignore. And there's a camp of um, economists and investors that focus on the Japan example and, you know, look at them for a very long time. They've been, um, you know, monetizing their debt and printing money and they haven't been able to get inflation. But I don't think that episode's complete. Like they haven't, we haven't, and it's one country um, that that we don't know how that story ends because they're still in the middle of it. Um, and I think some people similarly were surprised we didn't have inflation in the last decade here in the U.S. And again, I would say that this episode is not complete. Um, but and so I think that they're now testing the limits of of QE and money printing and maybe MMT and. I mean, I think that the the end result, all road, you know, all the roads lead to inflation in the end because um, because the I, these limits are going to keep getting tested every time we have a drawdown in the markets, every time the economy is soft. Um, I think we'll continue to to test it, and we saw a glimpse in late 2018 when you know Jerome Powell wanted to start tapering, and the markets threw up on it. So. I don't I think we're in a in the middle of this episode here and Japan is in the middle of theirs. And I think the end will, you know, as we build up debt levels, in the end, there's gotta be some austerity and some, you know, control over the money supply, or there's gonna be inflation. So 
that. I'm in that camp, but and a lot of very smart, you know, macro investors and economists I talk to are as well. But there's not consensus around it, I would say, at this point. When do we find out, right? So Bernanke got on 60 Minutes and told us that this is 2010. If the Fed had to raise rates, they could do it in 15 minutes and just we should all go worry about something else. And now for, I guess, 11 years or a little over 10 years, seems like there hasn't really been a problem. They haven't really had to do it. But at some point we find out. Is there any sense in terms of the timing and where we're going to find out if if he was right, or if we should actually be concerned about this inflationary pressure and the monetary and physical policy? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, I, I think that that if they hadn't moved the goalpost to an extent on when we would start raising rates, um, if they hadn't moved to the average inflation targeting, we'd be there right now, and we'd find out if you know Ben Bernanke was correct. I don't think they know what's going to happen when they start raising interest rates. Um, I think that that it's an unknown because it's unprecedented, and we'd be at that point right now if it were not changing the average inflation targeting because we have, we're coming out of COVID, uh, unemployment is, is trending to a reasonable place and inflation's trending up over 2%. And we've seen a big move in uh, inflation break even in the last three months and in the 10 year treasury yield. So the market is kind of in a normal environment would be ready, I think for uh, uh, rates to start coming up and it's probably gonna get delayed a year or two uh, because of infl- average inflation targeting, but we'll be there pretty darn soon. And and I don't think that that people really know how the market's going to react to that. So mm-hmm. that's a concern. And I think it's a reason to own gold. And the fiscal policy, how does that fit into all of this, right? Because that's, I guess we're now, we just spent a, a trillion nine. Now we're going to spend another two trillion on top of the six plus trillion we're already spending. And so, I mean, the numbers are, kind of unimaginable in some sense. Is there, is that part of it or is that kind of secondary to monetary policy in the way you think about it? I think it's the same concept, so to, so to speak. I mean, we've had very low rates for a long time. So, you know, um, Powell and others have said it's time for, you know, fiscal policy to play a bigger role. Um, and so it's, it's, I think, a similar effect. I mean, you're talking about deficit spending, with the deficit financed with, you know, treasuries um, and those, you know, treasuries purchased by the Fed if if uh, the market won't bear it. So it, I think it'll be the same effect. I think it. A lot of people, when there were the the Trump tax cuts, felt like it was, you know, uh, stimulative of the economy at a point when the economy didn't need stimulus, and so you know, fiscal action in the next twelve months has got to be in the same category of like we got through COVID, what, you know, you don't need to be running um, high deficits. Um, and so it, it's comparing it to mo- monetary policy, I think, is it'll end up in a similar place. But perhaps, and I'm speculating, because this is all kind of unprecedented, um, you know, the fiscal spending, if it's an infrastructure plan, or if it's, it's um, payments sent to, to people in their checking account, 
as things open up may result in a higher velocity of money than, you know, quantitative easing or, or, you know, some of the monetary stuff. So it may um, be a bit more of an accelerant on inflation um, than monetary policy, but we'll see in the next 12 months. So we talked, we talked about gold and uh, so, which is obviously something that makes sense in, in the backdrop you're talking about here. Any other changes um, that you have implemented or considering more seriously given the unprecedented macro backdrop? I'm trying to resist the, the pressure to, to reduce our fixed income portfolio. And so I think fixed income is an area that, that a lot of people have questioned in the last five to 10 years, but even more so in the last year as we've observed how hard it will be to hit the 7% return. It's viewed as sort of a, a weight on the portfolio return similar to gold. I think if you look at where like Schiller PEs are right now, I think that's the best indicator of the next 10 year return on equities. Um, and the, you know that metric would suggest a low single digit return for global equities right now, not a 7% return. So um, to me, I think fixed it, it makes sense to maintain as an institutional investor, at least 20, 25% of your portfolio in fixed income, just for liquidity to be able to rebalance. And, and just frankly, I think fixed income's 10-year expected return is probably not that far from equities with a lower volatility. Um, so that's one thing I'm trying to do is, is to just maintain some risk balance in the portfolio. I think hedge funds are really interesting here, macro hedge funds in particular. Um, I think that that's a way we can earn uncorrelated return. Um, and and I, you know, I would put like top tier um, macro hedge funds at a higher expected return than global equities, but most people in my industry would not you know, make that assessment. So those are a couple of things that I'm emphasizing aside from gold. And on the fixed income side, you less duration because you're more worried about rates, less credit risk, more credit risk. How do you, any kind of changes within the, the fixed income strategy? We haven't changed it a lot. Um, our, you know, our duration is kind of in the six, seven year period, and we have a mix of assets. Um, we actually own a fair amount of international sovereign bonds. So, you know, I, I've had people ask like, look, who are these people that own negative yielding German bonds? And it's us. And, you know, we hedge the currency. And right now the, the hedged return on European sovereign bonds are um, not that far from where the 10 year is. So if we got into a negative rate environment in the US and the hedged returns of, of international sovereign bonds was negative, that would be a tough moment, I think, in terms of thinking about our fixed income portfolio. I mean, I don't, and I think that that episode has occurred already in Europe and by and large European insurance companies and sovereign wealth funds, et cetera, haven't really made a big move that, you know, they own negative yielding bonds. I don't think I would be quite as accepting of that, um, but we'd have to think of the alternative and it might be something like commodities or hedge funds or something along those lines. Switching gears here, Marcus, one of the things that you do that I think is different from a lot of other CIOs and, and specifically people in, in, in your seat in a, uh, a CIO of a sovereign wealth fund is you do stock-specific work, you do uh, micro-cap uh, stock-specific work, 
um, in your free time. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and um, kind of what you learn or how that informs how you behave as a as a CIO um, for the Alaska Government Fund? So I do in my personal account, I trade uh, very small market cap stocks and over-the-counter stocks. And I kind of fell into it um, when I first came to the permanent fund. Um, I was working on our infrastructure portfolio. And at the time we had three infrastructure managers. So I would come in and kind of, you know, check in with them. And then ultimately I started working on other areas and got busier, but there was a period where I wasn't that busy and I would do, uh, uh, you know, like an under five times EBITDA stock screen and all the most interesting situations were, you know, smaller companies. I actually had one uh, called Callaway's Nursery where I bought a pretty meaningful position. Um, and then actually an act- activist hedge fund came into the name and, and it turned into a successful investment for me personally. And um, so our trading policy of the permanent fund is um, basically, if you're going to trade a stock, you have to see if it's in one of our accounts and then just disclose it. And with these smaller companies, I, I always look, but I never have to disclose it. You know, the smallest positions we'll have in our public equity portfolio are kind of two, 300 million market cap uh, companies. So um, I've, you know, as a as a personal investing matter, you know, spend a fair amount of time. And I like to build, uh, you know, meaningful positions in some smaller companies. I've joined a couple boards of companies I've invested in. So it's a great compliment because it doesn't really overlap uh, with the permanent fund, but it's also, I think, a source of interesting ideas in the market. Um, I, you know, it doesn't, there's such different worlds um, that I wouldn't say my microcap investing informs my permanent fund investments all that much. Um, but, it, you know, you pick up little things on industries and, and trends and whatnot that can be applied. Um, and I think for the most part, it's just that I'm, for my hobby, I like investing. And so I'm spending all my time thinking about businesses and investments instead of, you know, playing golf on the weekends, I guess. So these are sub $100 million in most cases in terms of the market gap is that What's what are valuations like there? What are the what are the issues that you get into when you and if you're sitting on boards, yeah. you must I guess you must really get into the issues in terms of whatever they are. Well, so you know, if you look at list exchange listed stocks in the US, there's something in the neighborhood of four to five thousand now. And I think before the SPAC boom, people were kind of bemoaning the number of public companies was decreasing. Um, if you go not exchange listed, so over the counter. Uh, equities in the U.S. It's more like 10,000 stocks. Um, and there's it's a, such a broad market. So if you look at listed banks, it's in the hundreds. If you look at over-the-counter traded um, regional and community banks, it's over a thousand. So that's a whole area. There's a whole area of kind of, you know, stocks that used to be exchange listed that have kind of fallen down. Um, you know, through their own issues and they don't want to spend money on the listing. And then there's others that have um, just always been um, over-the-counter traded, just never at an exchange listing. And it's so you, it's hard to kind of paint it with a broad brush. Like most of those 10,000 stocks you wouldn't want to own. A lot of them are, you know, shouldn't be publicly traded. And so it's a very narrow area that I look at, but, you know, I can find, you know, situations that are trading it, you know, 
fairly low multiples of EBITDA or book value. You know, if you sift through it, it's just a bigger universe of names that institutional investors aren't looking at. So there's more interesting situations if you turn over some rocks. And are some of the businesses, are they, you know, fast growing and highly profitable and innovative and like kind of checking all those quality boxes in addition to being, you know, uh, on an EBITDA basis or whatever multiple? I mean, are they, yeah, they're, they're I, obviously got to be pretty cheap, but are they actually really good? Most of the, the really interesting situations I find where it's like a high quality business are situations where it, there's large family ownership and through at times paying some employees some stock, at times different generations inheriting stock, you end up with several hundred shareholders. And so it starts trading over the counter. So one company is uh, JG Boswell, and they're like the third or fourth largest owner of farmland in the US and very high quality assets, but a very private company and a very private family. Um, Hmm. But they hold an annual shareholders meeting and they're transparent with shareholders, but they just don't really want to be a public company. But that's a high quality company. It's not rapidly growing. Um, and so I think most of the interesting situations are more value stocks than high growth. But there are some high growth ones. There's one company that I used to own, I don't own anymore, um, is a company called Mechanical Technology. And they, you know, they spun off plug power maybe 15 years ago, uh, which has become, I think, one of the highest market cap companies in the Russell 2000, a fuel cell company. And so mechanical technology um, has high caliber scientists and executives, but it's a small company. They got into uh, crypto mining um, and the stock, you know, I owned it because it traded on a low multiple of their legacy business. And it was one of these examples where a company announces it's going to get into cryptocurrency mining and the stock like explodes. So, you know, usually as a value investor, I'm not on the, the, the receiving end of like a GameStop type situation, but mechanical technology, which I'm now out of, is an example. And, you know, they might be successful or they may not be successful in crypto mining. I don't know anything about crypto mining, but the market loves it and they're going to uplist to the NASDAQ. And, you know, I wouldn't recommend anyone buy it now because it's up like 15x. But that's an example where they did something that, you know, the investment community liked, and there was explosive upside as a result. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So are you still in or you, you're out at this point? I am out of mechanical technology. There's gotta, so there's, it's got to help when you're then interviewing managers, right? And you're, yeah. as a stock picker yourself, you can sit there across the table from somebody that is a stock picker that's selling you on active management and their specific expertise. It's got to be easier for you to get to the the BS factor or to push harder in terms of whether whether they actually know their stuff because you do it yourself in your free time? I, I would say it helps. I mean, also on, you know, my background originally was in investment banking at Lehman Brothers and I worked in private equity for a while. That undoubtedly helps when we're picking private equity managers that I've been around deals and my team um, on private equity generally has a similar background. I think it's different than other state 
fun. So I think it, you're right that it does help, um, you know, as we're looking at active managers and active managers are 70% of our public equity portfolio. So, you know, it, it, we've kind of resisted the trend that the, in the industry of, you know, really shifting to passive. And so um, I think we, I have it in my just core investment belief that, you know, if you own a stock portfolio, you should know the names in there, which sounds obvious, but, you know, at this point, half of assets in the equity markets don't follow that, uh, that rule. Help us a little better understand exactly how you make those decisions. When, when do you want active management? When do you feel like there's not enough value add from active management that you're better off just, you know, going with the lowest fee decision? And how do you, you know, how do you make that determination amongst the sectors? Yeah. So if, if you talk to most people in the industry, they would say large cap developed markets are an area for passive and, um, you know, in the small caps and emerging markets, um, that's the place for active. And that, that we haven't really drawn that distinction. So like, if you, if you look at the pie of our public equity portfolio, it's about 70% active, but that's across markets and, and capitalization. So, you know, we'll, a large cap developed manager will run at a lower tracking error than a small cap or an emerging market manager. But we've tried to use our size to negotiate fees where we're not that far off from passive. And in fact, one of the things we've been working on is, is getting more of our managers over to very low base fee and then an incentive fee. So it's kind of like it's close to passive, but with an option on outperformance. Um, and if you look at the 30% that's not active, it's not like the you know, S&P 500 ETF. It's you know, about half of that is a portfolio where we trade ETFs to kind of express uh, our views. Um, we don't, we're not doing single stock in that portfolio, but we'll have some uh, sector overweights. That's where we own our gold miners and where we've expressed for the last few years a big overweight to value. And then the remaining 15% is some quasi-passive um, uh, exposure that we have. So we have very little like actual index exposure. So given given where equities are in general, and I think you alluded to this earlier in terms of the expected returns, just buying a basket of equities now are, are low, which is one of the reasons to stick with a fixed income portfolio. How do you navigate that market? Where are you know, in long biased or long only equity portfolios, what are the sectors that are less bad or maybe even actually good in this in this time? Yeah, well, it's a lot of people have observed the value versus growth discrepancy in the market or the, the just vast outperformance of growth. And, and that occurred in the last decade, but the last year of 2020 was one of the most extreme years of growth stocks outperforming value stocks. Like if you look at the, I believe if you look at large cap Russell 1000, you know, the, the, the growth third of the market outperformed the value third of the market by over 30% in, in 2020. So um, I, you know, we're, we have a tracking error budget on public equities and almost that entire tracking error budget is devoted to value overweight, both through backing value managers and then through the ETF portfolio I mentioned. Um, so you know, I think that value stocks could, you know, when you when you come up with a 10-year outlook for the stock market, you're blending everything together. But, you know, bank stocks, energy stocks, miners, I think 
our price to a good 10 year outlook um, in contrast to, you know, the FANG stocks or Tesla or any number of these. The, the issue is we have a tracking error budget. And so that's kind of the extent of that bet, so to speak, that we can make. So as a whole, I'm still um, not that positive on equities, but, you know, value stocks, I think there's three or four sectors in there that, that you know, will have a nice decade here. And in the correction last spring, did they, they didn't really, I mean, you didn't get any benefit for being in value versus, you know, you should have just owned Amazon or whatever it is in the correction, which right. must have driven a lot of people, value guys that were concerned about the overvaluation of equities, just nuts, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, I think for the three or four years going into 2020, you know, value felt pretty beaten up and everyone was waiting for the cycle to turn and, you know, go into a recession or, or a drawdown. And that would be when value would outperform. So no one expected that, that big move in, in, in the spring and in 2020 of tech and growth just massively outperforming. But you know, it probably shook out. I mean, it's been painful to be positioned the way we have. And um, we're finally with, you know, this calendar year, putting up, you know, really strong numbers on public equities. But the first few years I was CIO, we underperformed our benchmark. And that can get pretty painful. And I'm certain that this last 2020 shook out some final, uh, you know, investors that couldn't take, you know, value overweight anymore. But fortunately, we've stuck with our positioning. And I think it's set up pretty well going forward. What about private equity? So this, the temptation, right, because the consultants are willing to come in and give you a higher expected return on private equity. It's the one thing that solves everybody's problem, aside from the fact that valuations are very high now. Is that, are we seeing a bubble in private equity? And then, you know, does that end at some point? Or what's the, what are the concerns to have there? And how do you manage it? Yeah, well, private equity is a uh, good asset class if you're a skilled allocator because the the range of top quartile to bottom quartile is probably a thousand basis points in most vintage years. Um, and it's kind of like the phenomenon where everyone thinks they're an above average driver. Um, you know, every allocator believes that they're putting together a top quartile private equity portfolio. Um, so the you know, the, the average industry performance, if it's eight and a half percent, like Callan suggests, is going to have a wide range of underlying performers. And, and you know, so we believe that we're putting together a top quartile portfolio and the numbers have been very strong for the permanent fund in that area. But I'm just well aware that, you know, everyone kind of feels like they're doing a top quartile portfolio. I've spent my career in private equity and I've never seen it as um, frothy as it is today in terms of valuations, both venture capital and mature leverage buyouts. So I think there's going to be a reckoning at some point, but it's hard to tell when that would happen, which is exacerbated by the nature of quarterly valuations and how accurate they are or aren't. Um, so I don't know how it's going to play out, but I think that there's probably some investors in private equity, but more in than they'll be able to stomach over the cycle. Well, what about just finally here on EMP? So this is a sector which is unloved. Um, uh, it certainly hit some shocking lows back in the spring of last year. Um, 
is a source, I think, still of a lot of the permanent funds uh, inflows and, and funds from Alaska. Do you do you invest in it or you have to keep it modest? And how do you how do you pick companies within that sector? Yeah. So um, we do still get royalty deposits. They're you know a lot smaller than they used to be. Um, you know, production in the state here is on a slight decline. Um, so there are a couple promising new finds on the North Slope. So they're now forecasting things to level off here and maybe grow slightly. But if you look at the last decade, the, there's been a decline in production in the state. It's a mature field. There was, um, under the Trump administration, some hope that that um, there'd be an expansion into Anwar. So maybe the volumes in the state would increase. Um, so I give that, but that's now not looking like it will be the case. Um, uh, so I think the base case for the state is, you know, kind of flattish production. And so if we're investing globally in energy companies, um, we're getting different exposure and different, you know, type of, of, of you know, ENP to, to the royalty exposure we have. So we do maintain that. Um, and I think the, you know, um, as an investor, I have to look at the facts on consumption of petroleum and, and it continues to grow um, with the exception of, you know, recessions like 08 and during COVID. And so I think that it's at, you know, at sub three, four percent of equity indices. It's not a huge concentration. And it's, you know, one of the sectors that I think has a decent outlook when you factor in valuations where they are today. And more gas than oil, North America versus elsewhere. Any other, you know, thoughts for for, for those of us considering that sector or looking at that sector, how we might, where we might look or where we might find yeah, more I don't, I don't have like inter-sector views. I mean, we have, we owned for a while in our, that ETF portfolio that I described, we owned XOP um, when it, you know, that mostly on a valuation basis from, you know, where it drew down earlier this year. Um, you know, so I think, yeah, I don't have a, a, a forecast on, on oil versus gas, except to just, say that the world continues to consume more of both. Um, and um, so it, it's not in that category of, you know, uh, radio stations or, or newspaper publishers of a declining industry. And I mean, an investor can still make money in a declining industry, but that doesn't appear to be where uh, uh, oil and gas is today. Marcus, I want to I thank you for joining me on Real Vision. It's been, I think, just uh, you've been remarkably direct and you have a really amazing uh, breadth of uh, touch points across the uh, investment landscape, given what you do at Permanent Fund. And I really appreciate you taking the time to have this discussion with me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Sean. It's been uh, fun chatting with you. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to come on here. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.